Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you today. Uh, can I add my welcome to that of Vicky's? Uh, it is wonderful to have you with us, whether you're uh, here as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, or whether you're still searching and you're asking those questions. Uh, whether you're, wherever you're at, I hope that this morning, uh, this time is helpful. I found it really just so encouraging just hearing uh, from Nikki and Jenny just a few moments ago. Uh, that might have just sounded like a just another conversation with a couple of people from a church, as valuable and as wonderful as those things are. But uh, what that was an example of, I think, is exactly what we are keen to be on about as a church. Uh, That is, not just growing as disciples of Jesus, uh, but being disciple-making disciples, and that means uh, everyone seeking new ways uh, to be able to help others understand uh, Jesus, and that's what we call uh, being equipped. Uh, you might have seen that word up there. So it was just so encouraging to hear that, uh, and I'd love to see more and more of those stories in the years ahead. Well, one of my uh, favourite episodes of the great 90s sitcom Seinfeld is the episode titled The Comeback, or as it's affectionately known, The Jerk Store episode. Does anyone remember what I'm talking about? Okay, There's a, I've got a photo here of, for those who are not fans of the show... Uh, the plot, if you'd call a Seinfeld episode a plot, revolves around George Costanza trying to get back at his work colleague who mocked him in front of everyone else uh, during a work meeting. I think he was stuffing his face full of prawns or shrimp, and the colleague kind of piped up and said, oh, George, the ocean called. They're running out of shrimp. Everyone in the office laughs. George is humiliated. And then on the way back home from work, which that was a photo from, <laughs> He's going over the humiliation in his head. And you know what it's like um, having that experience when you've been humiliated. He comes up with what he thinks is the perfect comeback. Yeah, Riley, the jerk store called and they're running out of you. (laughs) And for the rest of the episode, uh, George is determined to orchestrate a repeat of his humiliation just so that he has the opportunity to give his perfect, what he thinks is a perfect comeback. Now, I love the episode, not just because of how ridiculous the plot is, but also, I think, because of how deep down, I think we can relate a little bit to George. Can we get that slide up again, Darren? Don't you reckon? And now, maybe not, but that kind of feeling of whether it's been, whether you've been humiliated publicly or whether you just feel the world is against you, whatever it is, the idea of putting somebody in their place, getting the perfect comeback, just feels like it would be so satisfying. Okay, we can get off now. That's right. <laughs> I, I made a, a reference when I put that up this morning. I said, I think this is half the tech team might have been feeling this morning when I told them about a couple of changes that I was making <laughs> this morning. Um, but I think what's interesting, in, with you, if you go to like the character of George from Seinfeld, every episode he seems to be at war with some form of injustice. And the battle kind of consumes him. Well, before we get too deep in today's passage, it's worth just reflecting on where are the George-like battles in your life? 
whether they are niggling frustrations that are getting blown out of proportion, or whether they are deeply held grudges towards somebody or some institution. I think it's pretty common for people to varying degrees to have some kind of mentally consuming psychological battle going on in their life, whether it's a frustration at a child's teacher for treating a child a certain way or someone who's let you down time and time again, maybe. Maybe it's a superior at work or a peer or a subordinate, perhaps one of your children or your spouse. Maybe there's a constant battleground going on for you. Maybe you feel just a deep resentment or anger towards the state or federal government because of some policy that's been made. Maybe a church leader or someone here at BHAC. I think during a typical week, many of us will find ourselves to varying degrees in having this kind of battle with injustice towards ourselves at some level. Maybe for most of it's a bit more like George in the quietness of your own car, going over, brooding over how you'd love just to put things right. Maybe that constant fatigue that you might be feeling of negative feelings about people that that can fill your thoughts. Well, I think this section that we're looking at today in 1 Peter has some really profound things for us to learn. It's profound because Peter is not saying that the experience of a day-to-day battle is something that should be out of place for the Christian. He's not saying that. In fact, when you look at this passage closely, he's saying the opposite. He's actually saying that the normal experience of the Christian life is a kind of a battle and a struggle. But the key difference, perhaps, compared to the George Costanza kinds of battles, is where this real battle takes place. And I think we're taught in this section uh, where we are called to direct all our, to use... uh, modern language, our negative energy that we might have in our, those, 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 that negative energy we might feel in our day-to-day battles, where we're called to direct it. And before we look into the specific verses that Jane read out a few moments ago, I want us to go back to the beginning of the section uh, that we looked at a little bit last week. Uh, so if you have your Bibles or access to them, uh, an online version or whatever it is, uh, go to verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2 where this section begins. And I've got the verses coming up here. If you just want to have a look at, uh, first of all, verse 11, see if you can notice and spot where the battle language takes place. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So these verses aren't urging us to live a George Costanza life. Right, here are they. You notice where the real battle is going on? A battle for our soul. It's the sinful desires within us that are at war with our hearts. And that is the real battle that is in the heart of every human who's ever lived. But actually, particularly for those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and are awaiting his return, this living hope that we've been thinking about, 
particularly, this whole section opens with a call for those who are followers of Jesus to take very seriously this battle that is going on inside each of us. Now, I've been told that uh, when you receive an organ transplant, we've got people in the congregation who might have a bit of first-hand experience with that, you need to take a whole bunch of uh, medication to ensure that your body doesn't reject the new organ because we are wired, our immune system is wired to sort of say, wrong, foreign body, get out, right? In the same way, Christians, when we receive a spiritual heart transplant, which is what happens when we give our life to Jesus, we're giving a new heart, there's actually a battle going on within us to reject our new organ, Our old flesh is at war with this new foreign body. It's determined to reject it. And so Peter calls his readers, and that includes us, to be sober-minded, to take seriously, be fully cognizant of the reality of where the real battlefield is right at the moment. And it says each individual is transformed by God's Spirit to live consistent with their new spiritual heart transplant that is when we start to see some of the fruit of God's kingdom growing here on earth within the heart of each individual well then how does it what does that mean for how we then conduct ourselves in the world verse 12 live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So as we abstain from the sinful desires and this this battle that's going on within us, by the help of God's spirit, our lives start to look different, radically different to those around us. Although many people might uh, seek to accuse you of, of doing wrong, We'll have nothing to go on. And that's what we call, we might call, if you wanted to title today's sermon, the redirected battle of the Christian life. So what does it look like in day-to-day life? Well, I think this section that Ben introduced for us last week, it gives us at least three examples of, of, of how this redirected battle plays itself out profoundly in transforming our old habits. You notice the phrase, submit yourselves, which occurs actually three times in this little section in 1 Peter. As Ben said last week, it carries with it the sense of put yourself under the responsibility or the authority of another. It's not unconditional submission. It's not forced submission. Peter exhorts his readers with their lives to voluntarily, through the power of the Spirit, put themselves under the authority of another. And the three contexts that we have seen, last week we looked at the the context of the secular authorities, this week we're going to briefly look at the context of slaves and masters, and next week we're going to have a look at the context of a marriage relationship. So why is this submit yourselves exhortation so profound, really? Well, it actually signals a radical, a radical reframing of our habitual battle lines, so to speak. See, in one sense, we have one of two options with our everyday battles for what is unfair or what's not fair. 
to use Peter's category, we can kind of put our, put our energy into trying to fix the problems out there, whether it's our spouse, our boss, our governments. We could always find ourselves saying the problem is out there, kind of a finger-pointing attitude, a George Costanza grumpiness. We can spend our energy assuming that if we were just to fix all the problems outside ourselves, then society would get better and it'll be fixed. Or we can spend our energy making sure that the battle within is being taken seriously. Training our bodies not to reject, but to accept our new spiritual heart transplant. So what does this mean? So to drill down a little bit further, as we saw last week, for, in relationship to uh, those in authority at a secular level, we're called to have a different default attitude. If you find yourself, your default attitude is to constantly tear down the government or those in authority with words, actions, all those kind of things, there's a challenge there, isn't it? Don't just say, that's my personality. I'm just wired to be a bit resistant to those in authority. Now, there's a warning here. Not to say there's never a place for civil disobedience, as we saw last week, or even Christians being involved in a, in a revolution to overthrow a tyrannical government. There's not saying there's never a place for that, but we must always begin with our default habit, pattern, to show respect, submission and gratitude to the authorities that God has placed over us. I was chatting to a, a Christian friend who lives in the US earlier this year, and he was sharing with me how hard he found it not to join in. Now, this might sound quite innocent, but with all the workplace uh, jokes that he had about jo Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Now, the difficulty wasn't because he was a supporter of Trump or the Republican Party, but he was actually wrestling with how do you stand out as a Christian and not just habitually point the finger and mock the secular authorities? How does it, what does it look like to have an attitude, not of necessarily endorsement, but of respect? Now, you might be following up to this point. You might be thinking, I'm okay with some of what we've been thinking about. Perhaps you've been thinking, yeah, okay, You've got no issue with the idea of Christians prioritising sorting out their own problems before they deal with the other ones, sorting out their own salvation before pointing the finger at other people. But you might have a legitimate question, what about the injustice out there? What if those over us are not acting in a way that honours God? What if those in authority over us have it in for us? And what if I'm, I'm not delusional and someone at my workplace really is making my life awful because I'm a follower of Jesus? What do I do then? Surely the battle's not just within me. Surely there is a battle out there. How do I respond if I'm being bullied or picked on? Well, I think we can learn a lot from Peter's instructions to slaves and slaves in, uh, in the context of masters. But before we delve into them, it is worth just noting a couple of things about the language of slaves and masters. Particularly in the New Testament, you might often hear people criticising anyone who takes the Bible seriously by saying, how can you do that? The Bible endorses slavery. 
or the Bible's a product of its time, how can it be God's word to us today, it seems to endorse slavery. We don't actually have time to unpack all the assumptions behind those statements, of which there are many. But briefly, for the purpose of today's passage, it's worth clarifying a couple of important things about the Bible's teaching on slavery. First is that modern-day slavery and 19th century, uh, the 19th century slave trade uh, is very different to the slavery in the first century. Uh, the first century, uh, even though modern-day human rights didn't exist in the first century, uh, the, as close as a concept that would, would be there, there was many more human rights or rights for slaves uh, in the ancient world than what we would call slaves in today's society. Uh, also, slavery was often done in the, in the 19th century and today, often on, on, along racial lines or class lines. It wasn't that way, the same way in the first century. Also, the, in the Bible, slavery is never endorsed. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul says if you are, to slaves, if you are able to gain your freedom, you should do so. Uh, the other thing to notice is that uh, while there are some parallels between first century sl slavery and maybe the modern uh, employee, uh, there are many differences. Uh, slaves were unambiguously regarded as second-class citizens in the ancient world. And so for them to even be addressed in this letter is countercultural to a huge degree. And, and also to become a slave in the first century... While sometimes it was a choice made by an individual to avoid poverty, uh, the modern employee, particularly in areas where we live, just has a huge amount more autonomy and independence and workplace protections uh, than the first century slave. So with those disclaimers out of the way, what do we learn from Peter's instructions to the slave? Notice that there's no instructions given to the master in this particular passage. What we learn is we see, like the instructions regarding secular authorities, that slaves are called to submit themselves, put themselves under their earthly masters. Verse 18. Now, you can imagine straight away, for the, in the context of the first century slave who had come to know Jesus, they would have, you can imagine the dilemma, they would have had two competing loyalties. Straight against, who is my master? Do I serve... Do I serve Jesus and just and, and be disloyal to my earthly master, or do I serve my earthly master and be disloyal to Jesus? No, what we see here, they both come together. It's interesting, in that verse, in verse 18, slaves are called, in reverent fear of God, they're called to submit themselves to their masters. It doesn't say, in reverent fear of your master, earthly masters, submit yourself to them. It doesn't say... Uh, it, 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 does, it doesn't say the opposite, does it? It doesn't say, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to God. It's actually pulling them together. It's because a slave knows who his or her ultimate master is, perhaps unexpectedly they actually can show loyalty to their earthly master. Again, the principle, as we learned last week, is that Christian service of God doesn't play itself out by disobedience to the authorities. And we see as we read on, in fact, that Peter's concern, a bit different to last week, is not so much how slaves are to conduct themselves when things are going well, when the master is kind and considerate. His concern is to help slaves understand how they're to conduct themselves when things are really unfair. 
I assume there would have been good masters and awful masters in the ancient world, just like uh, there would be good bosses and bad bosses today. And in, in one sense, the slave, trapped in their social situation, in one sense, they had little choice about whether they would obey or not obey their earthly masters. I assume... If they were disobedient, they wouldn't eat. Some, some, there'll be things like that. So in one sense, the instruction so much is not to obey your earthly master. The instruction here is to demonstrate a profoundly, radically different attitude to the master who is treating them unfairly. See there in verse 19, there's actually something commendable if someone bears up under the burden of pain and unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. And what is Peter saying here? Is he calling all Christians to take pleasure in pain? No. Is he calling all Christians to go and find situations where they can play the victim? No. Is he calling all Christians to become a doormat? No. Is he calling all Christians to have no concern for abuse or bullying? I don't think this is what Peter is getting at certainly in no superficial sense. He's calling Christians, particularly those who are being treated unfairly, to not simply put up with abuse and not just simply endure it for endurance sake, but to see they have a unique and profound opportunity for deep fellowship and identification with Christ Jesus in the way they conduct themselves in these, what would be the lowest of the low social situations. See, the benefits of Jesus' suffering, we often focus on what he did for us at the cross, which is, of course, the ultimate. We see there in verse 21, we're given an example to follow he has left us an example. The word example is literally the word for a stencil or a tracing or a template. A little tracing. Like a, you can kind of imagine if you could trace Jesus' sufferings as a stencil. He's left us this stencil to follow. Do you remember those um, WWJD bands? I don't think you can still buy them. I don't know if you still can. They used to be apparently the, the most stolen item at Kurong. Is that true? I don't know if that's an urban myth, but anyway. <laughs> Um, but you remember, you know, the, 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 and, and one says I was never a huge fan of them, but I also appreciate the sentiment behind them. I haven't been a huge fan of them because, well, there are, <laughs> there are things that Jesus did that only Jesus did. And if I'm going to a picnic, you know, and I've, people forget to bring their lunch, and there's a lot of people there, I'm not going to sit down and break some, look at my WWJD fan and say, hang on a second, I think I can do something with this bread. You know, I... I appreciate the sentiment behind it, but Jesus, we're not called to just think about what would Jesus do? And often, the problem with that kind of sentiment is it's often focuses on the triumphalistic, the miraculous, the victorious Jesus, the activist, the warrior, WWJD. But we do have a WWJD equivalent in this passage here. It's a call to follow the tracing of what Jesus did, but it's not just everything that Jesus did. It's specific. What would Jesus do? And it's the shape of his sufferings that we're called to imitate, to trace around. 
Have a look there at verse 22 and 23. This is your WWJD ban. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. See, I think this is where the rubber hits the road for me in my life. And I don't, I don't know if that's true for you, but I'm certainly no first century slave, but I certainly have many George Costanza moments every day, every week. But they're much darker, really, because that's sort of making light of it. I'm tempted to twist the truth, to put a bit of deceit into my mouth to make myself look good or, at worst, to make others look bad or to avoid a difficult situation, difficult confrontation, difficult conversation. If someone insults me or publicly humiliates me, I find it almost impossible not to try to stand on my rights to sort of prove myself. For many of us, maybe the most common form of retaliation at those who have done something to us is possibly the habit of venting our problems to someone else. We've kind of justified it as some kind of therapy. That's okay, I just need to vent. It's not gossip. Whether it's downloading on to your spouse about all your frustrations or downloading to your someone else about your frustrations with your spouse, whatever it is, or your boss, or your, whatever it is, this seeking to square the books. We're not called to do this. Whatever you want to call it, it's not certainly not the tracing of Jesus' suffering. It's not the template that we're called to follow. We're actually given a radically different Christ-like response that on the surface might appear weak. It might appear like you're a walkover. It might appear like you've got no concern for being treated unfairly. But actually, when you look below the surface, the, what we're given is actually the opposite. Because of what God has done for you in Jesus, you are able to hand all the judgment over to the one who will judge perfectly. So if anyone is qualified to deal with injustice in the world, it's God, not me. And if you think about what this actually means for your life, if you think about where your energy is going in the week, negative feelings towards other people, it's liberating, really. It means we can be freed from the paralysis of seeking to right those wrong, those people who have wronged us. I remember chatting to a minister a long time ago when I was feeling frustrated at a particular person a long time ago, and, and he said to me, and I still remember it, it just stood out in the conversation because I was sort of going, but you know, you know, sort of arguing, you know, my case and all this. He goes, Luke, why can't you just be wronged? It's exactly the point, isn't it? It stuck with me. Not for eternity, but why can't you just be wronged? Now, this is not to say those who are in abusive environments should just put up with it. And we live in a time where there are, there are more and more avenues of care and protection uh, for those who are going through this kind of abuse. 
This is not a call for people in those situations just to endure it with a stiff upper lip. In fact, because actually, um, it is actually loving for others to, to have that abusive environment dealt with for the sake of the abuser and for the sake of anyone else who might be affected. Don't hear me saying that you know, if you are being abused at the moment in any kind of way that you're just going to grin and bear it or anything like that. No, what we're hearing today is that our suffering is not done in silence, no matter how lonely we might feel. We know that God knows our suffering. We know that the way that we handle our suffering and commit our suffering to God is commendable to him. We know that God will right the wrongs. There will be no injustice that you have experienced in your life that will not be finally and fully dealt with by God. These words are intended to be great comfort to those who are suffering injustice. And I love the final verse, verse 25. Kind of goes full circle, you know. He shows us, you know, it began in the beginning of the passage, you know, abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter comes and says, look look at who your real master is. Not a cruel master, but a shepherd. An overseer of your soul. The one who is with us in our battle against sin and gives us the assurance that he is and will be victorious over that battle that rages within us. So as we finish, it's worth thinking, do you know that shepherd? That good shepherd? Are you able to trust all injustices over to him? Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for the living hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And I pray for us today as a community, particularly those of us who might be acutely aware of these feelings of hurt and heartache, uh, injustice. And we pray that you will help us to deeply trust you and hand these things over to you. We ask that you will help us to follow that tracing, that stencil, that template that you left for us in the suffering of your son. We pray that we'll take great joy in knowing we have him as our shepherd and our overseer of our souls. Amen.